Now, we've been looking at the Church of Christ, and we saw the invisible church and the visible church over those two weeks. The visible church has God organized it and called it out of the world and set it up with a government and worship and doctrine. And we saw last week that there is what um, the confession of faith, which is based on Scripture, chapter 25, that's on one of your handouts, um, that it can be considered from another point of view, which is that it's invisible. That's paragraph one of uh, the chapter on the church in our confession. So you'll see that sentence begins, the Catholic, and that's not the Roman Catholic, but just the, the universal church on the earth, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been are or shall be gathered into one. And then in the second paragraph, there is a visible church which God organizes on the earth. Um, I hope we saw that extensively, and all I'll say about that is to not confuse it. It's basically, if you think of the church as one thing, almost like a mountain, and these two paragraphs look at the mountain from two different points of view. That's basically what's happening here. There is a church that God has organized on the earth to spread the gospel, but there is also a church in heaven where the redeemed have gone, where the spirit of just men are made perfect, and where the saved go to be with Christ until the resurrection. And that church um, was in the mind and heart of God from all eternity. What he loved us with an everlasting love and before he made the universe, he knew his people. So this is one church. It's the church of Christ. It's an assembly. But from one angle, that mountain is visible on the earth. It's organized. This is one congregation that's part of that visible church. But there is also something behind the scenes where God is at work saving people. And you often can't tell when someone's saved or when it happens. And we can't always see what God is doing and the invisible side of things. So we just think of it from those two points of view. It's one church um, that looked at from two different uh, points of view. So as we've seen what the church is, as we're studying it, now we come to uh, something very central to it as we open out this study. And we see tonight that Christ is the head of this church, of this gathering, of this assembly that God has called out of the world to be a people for himself, to worship him and know him, to be saved by him, to love him, to live by his law, and to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember last week we said that it's the bride of Christ. He is the husband of this church. Here we see that he is the head of this church, or that he is the king. And these two things are the same thing. He is head of the church, and he is a king of the church. And you'll see that in the other handout that I gave you. How does Christ execute the office of a king? That's from the Bible. These are not the ideas of men. That's straight from the Bible. We, we sang a psalm about Christ being king. We've read several passages that show that he is a king. Um, there's a description which we'll look at a few things from that show uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ is king of the church. I just want to say something as we go into it. Um, Obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ was born 2,000 years ago. 
and he began the new covenant era. He brought the gospel in fresh and full and unveiled light to the world. It went out from just being Israel to the whole world. And obviously we can think of the church since then as the church of Christ. That he became head and king of it at that point. But we have to remember, as I said in our first evening together, that the church existed long before that. Moses was in the church. Israel was in the church. Job was in the church. Daniel was in part of the church. Part of the assembly of God's people in covenant with them. And um, that, that church, it's not that it didn't have a head. It's not that it didn't have a king. God was its king. And even Christ himself, in a sense, was its king. Because before he was born, he, he already existed as the Son of God. He was the, the eternal second person of the Trinity anyway. So according to his, and this is slightly complicated, but according to his divine nature, he already was head of the church. It was the Son of God that called Adam in the garden. It was the Son of God that spoke to Noah. It was the Son of God that, that blazed in a fire in the bush and spoke to Moses and said, I am that I am. That was the Son of God. It was the Father and Spirit with the Son, but the spokesperson for God, the, 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 the one through whom the eternal God communicates to man is always the Word of God, the Son of God. He is the Word, the communication of God. We can even argue that when God made the universe, He did that through the Son. Paul says that. God, by Him, created all things. The Word, let there be light, in the beginning, was the, it was the Son of God that spoke that. He communicates and brings to pass God's will. And it was him that appeared to Moses in the bush. The angel of the Lord, the Old Testament calls him. But he's not an angel. When he says, this is the angel of the Lord, it's saying that this is the messenger from the other side. This is God's messenger. Not an angel, but the angel of the Lord. That's, that's a, a title for Christ in the Old Testament before he's even born. He appeared in Babylon. He appeared in the book of Judges. Um, the three in Babylon who were thrown into the furnace saw one like the Son of God in the furnace with them. And that was the Son of God. It was Christ in a, a pre-incarnate form. It was before he took on, before he contracted himself into a human nature in a womb and had DNA and all of these things and was born just like you and, you and me. He was already there in Babylon in the furnace with those with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He was with his church then, saving it, protecting it, and he was already its ruler and its king. But obviously, something changes when he's born. Something changes once the church is fully brought into being in the New Testament. And we know from his life and ministry that something changed. There, there is a way in which something changed. Now, if we say tonight that Christ is its king and its head, it says that in the confession, in the first paragraph, 
It consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ, the head thereof, and is his spouse, the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He is its head and king. If we say that he is the king as, as believers tonight, if we're in Christ, or if we're not believers, um, it's important for us just to understand what that means and to think a little about it so that we will understand the Lord better. That's why we're here, to behold his glory and to know him better than when we, when we came in. How did uh, he become king of this church? Let's see it. And we're rooting ourselves in Ephesians 1, the passage we read, and the closing verses of that chapter, verse 20 to 23. But just look at the words that close that portion that says in verse 22, God put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. That's what they quote in the confession. How did that happen? If Paul saying to the Ephesians, this man became the head, not only of a body of people called the church, but he became the head of all things, Paul says. How is that possible and how did it happen? Well, he became head of the church by saving the church. And the first thing he did was that he bought the church. He bought it. Paul says that in that chapter in Ephesians, in the first chapter, he says in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. So yes, he elects souls, and he, he calls souls to himself, but how does Christ get a church? He has to pay for it. He has to buy and purchase that church. Because the church is lost. It's made up of lost people. They're all in the world. And they're in the grip of the evil one. They've sinned against God. And the law is against them. It condemns man. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God is separate from them. They're at enmity with God. How can Christ come and make a church out of them? He has to, what Paul says here, redeem them. In him we have redemption. And that's a word about buying something. Maybe you have a voucher that you redeem. You redeem money and you redeem things back. That's what that means. In the old world, if there were people who'd been taken captive and pulled away from their families and made slaves, to get those people back, you had to buy them back. You had to redeem them and pay a price to, to have them back or to release them from slavery. If you someone took pity on a slave and just wanted to release them, they had to pay the slave master money, and that person would be let free. That person would be saved. And that is the picture in the New Testament of our salvation. That's what it means to be saved. We were bound, Paul says. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, he says in the second chapter. We were... In bondage, he says. And we were in the grip of the prince of the power of the air. And he had to redeem us. And he did that 
by paying for the church. And he paid with his own blood, his own life, as the Son of God, living a perfect life from the day of his conception. Perfect and sinless in, in his body, in his soul, and as he developed into a child, his thought life, his emotional life, his will, all of his actions and words, every single one of them flowing through every second of his life as he grew, was sinless. He wasn't contaminated by sin. And all of that all the time was fulfilling the law of God that we should fulfill. He worked all that through throughout his life. And then in his 30s, he was offered up as it was prophesied and as it was appointed by God. That's why he was born. He was born to die. They shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This person was born for the specific purpose of offering himself before God in an eternal sacrifice. When he went to the cross and he faced God, not the Romans, not the Jews, but he faced God. And God dealt with him in our place. He did to Christ what was due to me and to you. If we want to see what our life deserves, and I can't deviate into this, but if you want to see what our lives deserve, you look at the cross. That is what sin actually deserves. And Christ lived that life, and then in a sinless capacity, he offered himself. He bore the weight of all judgment for sin. He almost experienced a kind of hell on the cross. A forsakenness and a wrath and an anger from God the Father that if you're a Christian you will never experience. Only someone who is utterly lost and who dies in this world and passes from this world outside of Christ and is consigned to hell. Only that person knows what it is to suffer that kind of wrath. But Christ knows because he did it and he did it all to pay for our salvation. He earned that salvation in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom payment for many, the Gospel says. So he paid. Now Paul says this in the book of Acts. Many of you know the passage when he's meeting the Ephesian elders for the last time, Acts chapter 20. It's the last time they're going to see him because he will be arrested and he will be brought to Rome. And he says goodbye to them and he tells them how much they should love the people of God and that they should be aware of, beware of wolves who will come in to the church with false teaching to drive the sheep away. And he says to these elders, shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. That is how you begin to understand Christ having a church. This isn't some group of people that Christ feels passive about. These are people who Christ pitied so much in eternity that he came into the world and lived in Nazareth for many years without a father, 
with brothers and sisters who were unbelievers, surrounded by sin, with people in his life dying, and with sinful men and a sinful church all around him. It must have been a constant agony to him to be surrounded by that. And not only that, but he was spat upon, he was lied about, he was accused. People shot arrows and words at him constantly, and then he had all the physical and spiritual sufferings of his death. Why did he do that? He did it, Paul says, to purchase the church of God with his own blood. So that's the first stage of, though he is God, and he's king by nature over all creation, he has to come into the world as a man to bind himself to these men and women and become their king. You can't be a king over someone if you aren't the same as them. The the lion rules the lion kingdom. The ants, the ant queen rules over the ants. A man has to save these people. And he did it with his own blood. But then he we understand his kingship like this. Then, when he gave his soul to God on the cross and said, into your hands I commit my spirit, and God received him and declared him to be the Son of God and declared that he had accomplished all that he ought to accomplish, God raised him from the dead, declaring him to be the Son of God, and he said, all authority is now given to me in heaven and on earth which we read this morning. That authority is properly given to him after he's risen from the dead. But that even isn't his kingship complete. Because what has to happen after that? Christ didn't stay walking around Galilee saying all authority has been given to me. He's not still here. He was king anyway. He was given authority after his death. But it's not until he ascends that we see his kingship unveiled in its fullest glory. And we read about it in Daniel 7, that the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father, the Ancient of Days is in his throne room, and he sees one like the Son of Man come to him, and he gives him a kingdom. And that is a picture there of Christ ascending from this world into the other one. And when he did that, he then became king of the church in the special way that he is now. He became the mediatorial king, the mediator between God and man. He became the king of the church. We sang about it in the Psalms. In Psalm 21, if you can actually just look at Psalm 21, we sang it and uh, we get an exact picture of Christ becoming the king. In Psalm 21, Psalm 21, verse 4. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him. You make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with the gladness of your presence. There's a picture of Christ as he's raised from the dead and he's given everlasting life and he's given splendor and majesty. Uh, Look at verse 3 of that psalm. 
you meet him with the blessings of good things and set a crown of fine gold on his head. Turn over to Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verse 7. We have a picture of Christ entering heaven to become king. Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. In other words, this one who comes in to these doors, it isn't just a man, it's, it's, it's God himself. It's the Lord who is knocking at the doors of this kingdom to be received in and recognized as his king. And that happened when Christ ascended. He taught the apostles when he needed to for those 40 days, but he was anxious to go and he ascended and blessed them, but he passed from this world and appeared in that other world, in heaven itself. And the angels whom he created, who had watched him die, who had watched him live, who had watched him teach, and who saw all his great works, the angels recognized this man, this Jewish man, the Lord Jesus Christ. They recognized this is our king. And he goes in to the kingdom. And all of the inhabitants of that kingdom, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all who had passed there, they recognized the one who they waited for all this time. And God the Father testifies, this is my beloved son. This is the king. And he is crowned. And he is given a kingdom. He is given rulership over the whole world and universe and the church. He is, Adam was the Lord of the creation when it was made. Adam was in charge of it and he lost to all. Jesus Christ is now the Lord of creation. We can put it further. He is the king of heaven. He is the king of the world and the universe. He is the king even of hell. He is king of all things that exist. That is, uh, <laughs> that is wonderful. And Peter, who was so afraid and crushed, and he denied the Lord before a servant girl, when he goes at Pentecost to preach, he says to the Jews, I declare to you that this man whom you by wicked hands crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And the other apostle says, Paul says, in his letter to the Philippians, that he was, he humbled himself to the death of the cross, but God has now highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. He has exalted this man, this God-man. Paul actually says there, he has hyper-exalted him. He's not just exalted him, he... Christ is as, is as exalted as it's possible to exalt anything or anyone. He is hyper-exalted. Far above, Paul says in our chapter, all principality and dominion. Not above, but far above. 
Jesus Christ is not going to come down and interact with our president and senators and have a discussion with them. He is hyper-exalted. The whole universe is under his command and control. He sustains it all by the word of his power. The world turns because he says it turns. The grass grows and the sun shines and the waves come in and they come out because he is in control of them. And the solemn thing for you and I, if that's true, then every single thing about you, the hairs on your head, the clothes you have on, all of your sustenance and food, the light that shines on your face, any emotion that produces happiness in you and makes you to smile, any friendship you have, anything you have, and your own brain and your soul, these great gifts, your eyes, which you can see with, that you take for granted, these miracles in what should be a dead universe, all of you is governed by Jesus Christ. He's not far away from you. You are being held together right now because of him. He knows who you are because he was made king and head of all things. That is amazing. He was made that. And as the head of all things, as the mediator over all of this, he has offices, prophet, priest, and king. We're only looking at king. He's a priest. I explained that to you. He died for his people. That's what a priest does. He's a prophet. He speaks God's word. I've explained that. But if he went from this world and is exalted in the way I've described to you and received into heaven, crowned and coronated on the throne of all things, on God's throne, if he's ruling over all that, what does that mean for us as a church? And I've got a few applications uh, to set before you uh, with the, the short time we have left. A few applications of the fact that he is king. What, what should this mean uh, for me and for you? Well, it first means this, and I'll number them as I say them, so that if you're writing them down, they're easy to remember. If all this is the case, one, he is possessive of his church. He is possessive. He says in the gospel, this is my church. On this rock I will build my church. In our passage here, he's called in verse 6, the beloved, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. That's a kind of marital name. Like he's our husband. Like he looks at his bride. He is the beloved. And he is possessive over this church. And I don't mean that in a negative way. There are possessive people and we usually think of that as a negative thing. But all I mean is, he's not looking at this church as a machine. His heart is engaged in this. He looks at this as my church, my kingdom. They shall be my people, and I shall be their God. He calls the church in the Bible, my beloved, my sister, my spouse, my dove. These are beautiful terms of endearment and affection. Have you ever felt that, that that's what Christ loves you like? Do you know if Christ loves you? 
you're in the church and part of the church, but are you his spouse? Is that really who you're married to? Or have you never come to know this husband? Because Christ says of his people and his church, my beloved, my sister, my dove, my perfect one. Turn, this is what he says in the Song of Solomon, turn your eyes away from me, for your beauty has overcome me. That's how Christ feels about his church. It is his bride. And he purifies her and he says, it's difficult to even look at you because of the love that I have for you. You know what it's like if you truly love someone and you're really taken by them. It almost hurts. The the, the power of that love you have for them, it stops the heart and seizes the heart. And that's a kind of human description Christ uses of himself. Turn your eyes away from me. He takes possession of this church and it is precious to him. He says elsewhere, I will gather up my jewels. Each of them, a different jewel, each of them, I will gather them up. And he says, I will rejoice over them. So let's remember that. He is king of this church, but that's where it begins. That there is a personal relationship he has with it, and he cares about it deeply. It doesn't look like that. I'm going to say something about that in a minute, so I won't go into it. He possesses it. Secondly, he administers God's law and word in it, because it is a kingdom. And I'm not going to spend much time in this, because we looked at it this morning. There's, these sermons seem to have been merging, and that wasn't planned. But we've seen how he governs his church by his law and his word. He is the judge and the head and king of this church. He cares about righteousness. And that is the way he exercises his kingship, by his law. You can see that in the catechism handout I gave you. He gives them officers, laws, and censures by which he governs them. And later on it says, he rewards their obedience and corrects them for their sins. That's part of his kingship. He's, he, he's not a, this benign idiot who is just enamored with a church and just lets the church do whatever it wants, like, like a parent or a husband or a wife who doesn't care and just lets the husband or wife do whatever they want, even if it's destructive, or people who just spoil their children and just let them do whatever they want and destroy them. Jesus is not a king who is benign, inactive, and not present. He cares so much about this church that he will govern it by his word and his law. We have to remember that. You can come in here and treat it very impersonally. You can come in here and think this is a place we go to sing and hear someone. You can think of it in a very unspiritual way. That is not the truth, and we're in a very bad place if we've got there in our mind or heart. Jesus doesn't look at it that way at all. He governs this church. In our passage, Paul says he is the head And he says in verse 23, the church is his body. Christ is as involved in his church on earth as you are with your body. 
Do you ever go anywhere without your body? Does your head ever go anywhere? Can you, can you bring any action about from your mind without using your body? How ridiculous. Your hands are always there. You're always using them. Some people use their mouths a lot. You use your feet. Your heart is pumping all the time. You're always breathing. The blood is always flowing through the veins. You're always using your body. Well, Christ says the church is my body. That's how close he is to it. And he governs that body as a head according to his word and his law. Even if ministers wouldn't do it, even if elders wouldn't do it, even if members wouldn't do it, the last analysis will be that Christ will have his way because he's the head. Sometimes your body doesn't do what you want it to do. Sometimes Christ's body doesn't do what he wants it to do. His body sometimes has seizures. His body sometimes needs to to lie in bed for two weeks and recover because of what it's done to itself. But Christ will govern the church. Whatever's happening in the day in which we live, Christ will govern the church because it's his. He possesses it. He governs it according to his word. Three, he provides for it. A a king doesn't just have a kingdom. A king doesn't just rule the kingdom according to a law. He provides for his kingdom. Any good king or president does. Their first duty is to make sure that people are provided for, that they can work and provide for themselves. And Jesus does that. And he says in chapter 5, No man ever hated his body, but he nourishes it and cherishes it when he's comparing Christ and his church to a husband and wife. And he's saying, you don't hate your own flesh. You don't treat your wife badly. She's your own flesh. You're not to mistreat her. Whoever mistreated their their own body in that sense, no, no, you feed it and you cherish it and you look after it. Christ nourishes and provides for his church as a king. And the catechism tells us what he gave. He He gave officers, laws, and censures. Our confession tells us that he gave it the ministry. See on your sheet there, paragraph 3, the ministry he gave it. The oracles, which is scripture. The ordinances of God. These are no small things. How does Christ provide for his church? He gave it the ministry, the scriptures, all of the worship ordinances, and he gave it officers, and laws, and sometimes even corrections. Christ has provided for his church. The bread of the word is on the table at all times. The company of the table fellowship is always there because the church has people in it. He he provides in all of those ways. I was going to say he washes uh, the church. That's a provision too. And um, He provides all these things. What is his ultimate provision? What has Christ promised his church? Their ultimate glory. That he will bring the church to himself in glory. In a kingdom that lasts for eternity. They will be in the house of God. Heaven. A new heavens and a new earth. 
Christ has provided for you in all those ways. Everything I said last week is a provision too. Everything. His love, Him calling you to Himself, His union with you. But you think about your whole life, how much He provides for you. And I'm not talking about food and clothing and a home and a family. I'm talking about forgiveness of sins, justification, transformation, desires for Him that He gave you. Passage from through death from this world. What a provision that is. And then to be in an everlasting kingdom where all of your needs will be provided for all eternity in that kingdom. It's a full kingdom. So he possesses the church. He administers God's law and word in the church as its head. He provides for the church. For he governs all things for the church. Paul says that here. God put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. That means what I described to you in our, in our introduction, that, that Christ has been so exalted above all things, even the greatest angels are like grasshoppers compared to Christ. He is so exalted that he governs all principality, power, might, and dominion, verse 21. And he is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. And he governs all, Paul says, to the church, or for the church. You think about that. That every single moment and event and thought that is going on in the world right now, and we're seeing this with the authority of Scripture, that it's all happening because Christ ordains it. He is governing it, and it's not meaningless, and it's not chaos. It is all for the church. We get lost in this. Um, he is concerned for the church's good and he's governing it all for his good and we forget this we, we look at the Republicans and the Democrats fighting or we, we look at murder breaking out in a state where a family is slaughtered by a husband or we look at police officers being shot in Chicago or we look at trafficking or anything bad like that, or, or we look at the way sometimes the president behaves and what he believes and what he says, and then we look at all the vultures gathering around because they want to be next and they want to be president, and you look at it all and you say, what is this for? It seems it's just sinful man having a sinful way. It's emphatically not so. It is sinful man having a sinful way, but Paul tells us that Donald Trump is in the White House for the good of the church. And the judge that was just appointed to the Supreme Court is for the good of the church. Now, I don't support these people. I don't even like them. They, they, they're, they're, in the large part, destructive. But my point right now isn't whether they're doing good things. We have to rise above all this and look at what Scripture says. God is governing all of that for a purpose we can't even see. And yes, the immediate effects right now are destructive, 
because God wants it to be destructive. He is using that destruction for his own ends because the church is not faithful to him. And he is stretching the church and he is purging the church. There is not chaos in the church in America. The church in America is fully under the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one doing anything that Christ hasn't said, I, I in my authority allow this. And he's doing it to bring about uh, an outcome that we can't possibly even imagine. That's why it's happening. The apostle says in the famous verse in Romans, and you know this verse, he worketh all things together for the good to those who love God and those who are the called according to his purpose. He is working it all for an ultimate good. That doesn't mean it is good, always. It doesn't mean it feels good, but overall it is working together for a good. We know that will be the end result. Um, as believers and as a church, we may we struggle with that. I've been in those positions in my life. How can this be for my good? How can this be? How can this be good for this congregation? How can this be good for the Reformed Church in America? How can it be good? Look at all that is happening. How can this be good? Well, this is what the psalmist says in a psalm that is about how evil he thought his experience was. Psalm 73. When he says, God has forsaken me, everything's terrible, and I envy the wicked. And I'm like a brute before you, because none of this is good. But then he says this, surely it is good that I draw near to God. Surely it is good that I draw near to God. The psalmist says elsewhere, it is good that I was afflicted. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Now let me, let me enforce that onto your heart, if the Spirit is willing. It is good for the church if God afflicts her in this day. If she will become more faithful, if she will turn from her worldliness and seek Him in prayer and revival and power. And until she does, it will get worse and worse and worse. Why? Because it's good for us to draw near to God. And in our current state, we are not drawing near to God. Christ is governing and head of all things for the church's good. And he's doing that in this nation. He is squeezing it. He is letting morality fall apart. He is letting the family in many ways and marriage and other things fall apart. He's doing that. But the outcome one day will be that there will be a pure church in America again. I don't know how big it will be, but it will be purer than it is today because God uses the world and its destruction to test and refine his church. He governs all things for his church. 
Let me say a couple of other things, and then we'll close. He subdues her sins. In our paragraph there, uh, in the catechism question, he corrects them for their sins, he preserves and supports them under all their temptations and sufferings. He subdues her sins. That's part of his kingship. He, he loves her and owns her. He's married to her. He, he gives her his law. He provides for his church. He governs the world for her good. And there's sin in the church and in every Christian's heart. Corruption, corruption, corruption. All the time. It just comes out and out and out. It just keeps coming back. No matter what you do with it, it it will find another way of expressing itself. But God in Christ tells us that he will deal with and subdue these sins. Christ's kingship is not just to subdue all of his enemies, but to subdue our enemies, and that includes our sin. That's what he does. It's throughout Ephesians. I'm not going to refer to verses. I've given too many verses. But he he says to the church, I will make you clean. I will sprinkle new water on you. And I will turn your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I will clean your heart. What a promise. And that's what I want. And that's what my prayer should be filled with. In the church uh, right now and in the nation, there are so many ways of answering the question, what do the people of this nation need? And a lot of it is legitimate answers. But I can tell you that the fundamental answer springs into them all. And the fundamental answer is, people need their hearts cleansed. We are not pure people. We are not a good nation. There is dirt and filth in all of the hearts of this nation, from the bottom to the top. From the cleaner in McDonald's to the president himself, It's just unclean hearts. And the only thing that will change that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But he will, Christian, subdue your iniquities. That's a promise of Scripture. They will not reign over you. They will not have dominion over you. He will reign them in, cut them down, pull out the roots. He will keep your sins in check. And... He will defend us from our enemies. Six. He will defend us from our enemies. It says that in the Catechism. Restraining and overcoming all their enemies. What a promise. What a promise. This is his city. This is his kingdom. And if the the world governments want to fight against the true church, they will lose. They will push their truths onto the church. They will push all social movements onto the church. They will try and crush the, the church's doctrine, its doctrine of grace, its doctrine of salvation, its doctrine of marriage, it will try and crush all that God has given it. And it is utterly futile. Do you really think that a social movement or revolution can defeat the Lord Jesus Christ? His church is thousands of years old. There is not one organization in America that can claim that. Most organizations in America were born yesterday in a frenzy. 
and they want to attack Christianity, but I'm telling you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he will defend his church from these enemies. He will crush the head of the serpent. He tells the Romans to take heart. Satan will be crushed under your feet shortly. Every devilish movement in this nation is going to find its destination under the feet of Christians. Does that encourage you? That is where they will end up. We need to know our master and to prayerfully stand against these things. They, they make a lot of noise and they seem uh, very able and very powerful and very persuasive. But you have to look at, at it for what it is. These things from the evil one will be crushed under the feet of the church. That is the way we are to pray and the way we are to share the gospel and we are to hold on to the word of God. And the last thing he does for his church, seven, is he will come again to receive her. That is alluded to in the paragraph where he says he will protect them from their enemies, order all things for his own glory and their good, and take vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not uh, the gospel. He will come again and receive the church to himself. She has to fight in this world. She has to keep up her lines in this world and keep in her trenches in this world and be in battle for him. But at the sound of the trumpet, at the voice of the archangel, when men least expect it, when they're eating and drinking and giving and being given in marriage, as the Lord himself said, when it's normal and mundane, when you're at the cake shop or when you're driving your car or you're sitting at work or you're watching something on, on, on TV or you're checking your email or you're having dinner with your mother, at some point when you're doing something mundane and normal, the Lord, without warning, will flip a switch on this world. It had a beginning. Every scientist knows that. And its beginning was awesome, but that's nothing compared to its end. We are numb. You ask every tsunami victim, did you expect it to come? Ask everyone who has lost someone in an earthquake, were you sitting there ready for the earthquake? No one is ever ready. And these things are terrible in themselves. What will the end of all things be like? He will come to judge the world. And he will separate the world from his church and take her as his bride and take her home. Is that your hope? To be accepted in the Beloved to be redeemed through his blood. To have the Holy Spirit and to be saved. And to be under the hand of the one who is exceeding great in his power. And who is raised above all principality, might, power and dominion. And who is the head of all things. Why aren't you with him? Why aren't you praying to him? 
Why don't you love and believe in Him? Have I told you that you could know the President, maybe not the current President, it doesn't really matter, but in better days when Presidents were very much respected, if I told you you could know him and see him whenever you want and ask of him whatever you need and to go into the White House when it suits you and to, be in, to become part of the President's family and to have all your provisions for your whole life made for you, would you shrug your shoulders and say, that, that's not my kind of thing? Well, why is it any different about something like this, someone like this? Yes, we can see him. Yes, we find it convenient to disbelieve. Yes, we, our sinful hearts create all kinds of problems and find problems with Christ. But why do you think you're, you're in this world? Why do you think you're, why do you think this world is here? Why do you think you're sitting here in the pew? Is this all that is? Is there something beyond or is there not something beyond? The Word of God shows us clearly what is beyond. We are in the church and in all these ways the Lord Jesus Christ acts as a king for this church. May the Lord bless all these thoughts upon his word. Let's remain seated and uh, we'll pray uh, before we sing to close. Let us pray. Our gracious uh, God in heaven, uh, we ask you uh, now that you would set your word in our souls. And there is only one question which defines us whether we know and love this highly exalted King. O Lord, work your work in this world. Bring to pass all of your purposes. Look upon your church and bless your church and have mercy on the world and all the evil we see around us. O Lord, move your hand and bring to pass your kingdom on this earth. O Lord, that Christ would come quickly. We pray that he would come quickly, and that we would see him in all of his might and all of his glory. Hasten the day when he will return and when righteousness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. You tell us in your word to pray, Come, Lord Jesus, even so come. And we ask that. O oh Lord, we long to see you, and to see your name honored, and to see your ways and your word flourish throughout this whole earth. O Lord, bring it to pass. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. We pray, O Lord, that you would hear us 
Bless all of us who have come here tonight. Show us the truth and lead us in our lives. Help us to know and to see Christ. We agonize at the distance we often feel from our Savior. And we pray that you would make that distance as nothing. For he, he said he would not leave us orphans, but he would come to us in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. O oh Christ, reveal your power and your face in our lives and in our souls. For we ask it in your great name. Amen.